Hello, and welcome to the Alan Overy podcast. In this episode, we'll discuss some of the most topical current issues for listed PLC, AGMs, and annual reports, with a particular focus on practical points that we hope will help those who are planning for the 2024 AGM season. We'll then also look briefly beyond 2024 to the changes that we're expecting to the law and the UK Corporate Governance Code, and we'll share some of our thoughts on how companies can plan ahead for these now. I'm Victoria Rankmore, counsel in ANO's corporate department, specialising in corporate governance with a particular focus on annual reports and AGMs. And I'm joined today by three colleagues, Kate Astley, who is also counsel in our corporate department, Laura Millwood-Lynch, senior associate in our corporate incentives team, and Matt Townsend, who is a partner and co-head of our environmental climate and regulatory law group. Today's session will be divided into three parts, so we'll look firstly at 2024 AGMs, secondly at annual reports for the current financial year, and finally moving on to developments impacting AGMs and annual reports of the future. So if I start with AGMs, in recent years we've spoken a lot about the AGM format and this is still an ongoing discussion with strong views both on the importance of shareholders being able to meet their board face-to-face and yet also the benefits of technology in making AGMs more accessible. But I think that both this year and looking forward to 2024, it's the substantive AGM business that is the focus of most of our conversations with clients and in particular the resolutions to allot shares and to disapply preemption rights. So, Kate, if I could turn to you first, could you start off by giving us a brief summary of the current guidelines? Thanks, Victoria. So, just to recap briefly, following updates to the Investment Association Share Capital Management Guidelines in February 2023, and before that to the Preemption Group's Statement of Principles in November 2022, companies have greater flexibility when proposing their annual resolutions to authorise share allotments and the disapplication of preemption rights. More specifically, for the authority to allot shares, companies can now ask for up to two-thirds of issued share capital, provided that anything in excess of one-third is applied to fully preemptive offers only, and that's by contrast with rights issues only under the previous guidelines. Now, in practice, this means companies can do larger-scale capital raising during the year by way of a rights issue or an open offer without needing another shareholder meeting, unless, for example, there's a related Class 1 transaction. And then for the authorities to disapply preemption rights, companies can now ask for up to 10% of issued share capital for general purposes, with another 2% for follow-on offers to existing shareholders who didn't get shares in the placing. And then they can also ask for a second 10%, which can only be used to fund an acquisition or capital investment, although again, there's a possibility of a follow-on offer of up to 2%. Now, this change in the guidelines really is very significant in that it more than doubles the capacity of companies to do non-preemptive issues without needing another shareholder meeting, although they are expected to follow the shareholder protections and approach to follow-on offers specified by the preemption group, and a prospectus is still required for any issues of over 20% in a rolling 12-month period. Great, thank you. So, for the authority to allot, there's no change in the permitted level. It's still two-thirds of issued share capital, as it has been for many years, but there is greater flexibility in how the second third can be used in that it's any preemptive offer now and not just rights issues. Drafting wise, this means only a small change to the AGM resolution and its explanatory text. But what's market practice looking like in terms of whether companies are making this change? 
Well, firstly, I must point out that not all companies take the full two-thirds authority, although it is considered routine by major institutional shareholders. Of the companies that do go for the full two-thirds, and based on our review of FTSE 350 AGM notices published from the time the new guidelines were published and up to 20th September 2023, which is shortly before we're recording this, we were initially a little surprised to find that only around 35% had updated their resolution. However, on reflection and following discussion with a number of clients, I think this is mainly a matter of timing in that the mid-February publication of the updated guidelines was just a bit too late for many December year-end companies whose boards had already approved the main content of the AGM notice and who therefore parked this point to consider again in 2024. So with this context in mind, and particularly since the companies that have updated their resolutions so far have been very well supported, with only two companies having a significant, that's 20% plus, vote against an updated resolution, we are expecting, I think, a large majority of the companies that usually request a two-thirds authority to propose an updated resolution at their 2024 AGM. So that's something for companies that didn't update this year to consider for their to-do list for the next AGM at which point they'll also be thinking about their disapplication of preemption rights resolutions, of course. What's the market feel on those, given that the possible changes are more substantive? This has certainly been a common question over the last few months, with many clients seeming nervous initially about changing their resolutions, particularly since these are special resolutions, needing 75% of votes to be in favour. Again, we've been tracking FTSE 350 AGM notices published since the preemption group updated its guidance back in November 2022. And based on the notices published up to 20th of September, around 38% of companies have already gone for it with proposing updated resolutions. And the voting results of those that have already had their AGM have been really very strong, with the vast majority getting 18% or more votes in favour of their updated resolutions, and more than 70% of them getting 90% or more votes in favour. For completeness, I must also say that six companies received a significant, that's 20% or higher, vote against one or both of their updated resolutions, and two of these companies lost their resolutions. And so companies with investors who may be reluctant to participate in a placing or who are sensitive to dilution might wish to consult in advance of making any change. However, noting the overall high level of support at AGM so far for the updated resolutions and the benefits of having more capital raising flexibility, we expect more companies will update their resolutions in 2024 and that over time these new style resolutions will become the market norm. Thanks, Kate. Now, moving on from share capital authorities, but sticking with AGMs, I'd like to bring you in, Laura and Matt, to cover some of the other issues our clients have been talking to us about. So, Laura, thinking about the REM report, REM policy and share plans resolutions, which often seem to be where clients are keeping a particularly close eye as the proxy votes start to come in, what are your reflections on the most recent AGM season and what are your expectations for 2024? Thanks, Victoria. So looking back on the 2023 AGM season, what stands out to me is that the resolutions to approve remuneration reports and policies remain the most likely to have a significant, that's 20 plus, votes against, triggering a requirement under the UK Corporate Governance Code for companies to explain what actions they intend to take to consult with shareholders in order to understand the reasons behind the result. To give a bit more detail, so far this year, 31 premium listed companies have received a significant vote against their remuneration report including 23 FTSE 350 companies. And 14 premium listed companies have received a significant vote against their remuneration policy, of which 10 are FTSE 350 companies. In my view, there are a few clear trends behind these figures. Firstly, shareholders continue to have concerns about the introduction of restricted share plans in place of performance-based long-term incentive plans, 
and specifically the associated softer performance criteria, usually comprising a broad underpin of these plans. In particular, companies experienced shareholder opposition in relation to restricted share plans, where the proposed terms deviated from institutional guidance. For example, where the size of a proposed executive restricted share award was not at least 50% lower than the level of the equivalent long-term incentive plan award that it replaced, or where executive participation in the restrictive share plan was not tied to a significant shareholding requirement. Shareholders also opposed remuneration reports where they perceived that remuneration committees had overridden performance targets and or exercised positive or upward discretion in respect to the vesting of executive awards. Conversely, some companies appear to have heeded investor guidance and to have adjusted so-called windfall gains on long-term incentive plan awards that have been granted in 2020 during COVID-19 and were therefore granted over a disproportionately high number of shares due to depressed share prices. Several companies noted that these adjustments have been received positively by investors. In general, significant increases in levels of executive remuneration were challenged. This is perhaps unsurprising given the Investment Association's previous guidance that remuneration committees should be mindful of the current cost of living crisis and the ongoing economic uncertainty when deciding on their 2023 remuneration policy. I think there are a couple of key takeaways from these trends for our clients to bear in mind for next year's reporting season. The first is that the 2023 AGM season again underscores how important it is for companies to consult with a large proportion of their shareholder base before changing their remuneration policy or implementing a new share plan in order to ensure that investors are not surprised by the approach that the company is taking and that they fully understand the strategic rationale for it. Additionally, against the background of continued economic uncertainty and inflationary pressures, companies need to be prepared for increased scrutiny from shareholders and institutional bodies regarding the alignment of their remuneration strategy with the realisation of broader social and environmental goals. It is therefore very important for companies to demonstrate how their approach to remuneration is aligned with this wider agenda. For example, companies should consider specifically linking at least one underpin of a restricted share plan to achieving environmental, social and governance related metrics. A point I suggest, Victoria, that we revisit in more detail when we're talking about the annual report. Thank you, Laura. And now turning to you, Matt, we've spoken with many clients over the last few years about the say on climate resolutions at AGMs. And for a while, it felt like momentum was building. But I think in 2023, we've actually seen somewhat of a decline could you give some context to that, please, and perhaps a sense of where you're expecting things to go in 2024? Thanks, Victoria. You're absolutely right. During 2022, we saw an increase in the number of sale climate advisory resolutions put forward in the UK. But perhaps somewhat surprisingly, compared to a similar point in last year's reporting season, we have witnessed a drop by about half in the number of FTSE 100 and 250 companies tabling climate-related resolutions at their AGM, uh, from 15 at this point in 2022 to a total of eight so far in 2023. That said, there's no doubt that investor interest in climate-related proposals remains very high and demonstrating that these resolutions still carry significant weight and interest in the context. Looking ahead a little bit to 2024, climate resolutions I think need to be seen in the context of growing mandated environmental disclosures, particularly as regards climate. In Europe, we see the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, or CSRD as it's known, and the proposed Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence Directive, CSDDD, and this is an area full of acronyms, so I apologise. And of course, over in the US, we have the proposed SEC Climate Rule, and just generally a gradual rollout of enhanced disclosure obligations in the UK. 
This is reflected, I think, no doubt, in the trend towards mandatory disclosure of climate transition plans, as well as the requirement to disclose uh, non-financial and sustainability information statements, something we're now starting to see. So I think it's fair to say our clients are likely to face an interesting AGM season, and not only are they considering how best to respond to climate resolutions, but at the same time, very much they are focusing on enhancing the depth and quality of their climate in particular disclosures. And this for listed companies is coupled with encouragement from the UK Corporate Governance Code to communicate with shareholders. And there's no doubt more general engagement will be necessary for potentially contentious resolutions, uh, for example, in connection with climate transition plans. Glass Lewis has raised concerns about, say, on climate votes, maintaining that putting a company's long-term business strategy to shareholder approval could diminish the ownership and accountability of directors, discouraging them from modifying their plans to conform with changing best practice, scientific and technological developments. But nevertheless, as Glass Lewis, I think, emphasises, these proposals should be reviewed on a case-by-case basis so the companies are considered in the context of their unique operations, sectors and climate risk profiles. In addition, it's worth just briefly mentioning the uptick of climate protests, wider disruption at AGMs, as we saw in 2022 and in 2023. Typically, and unsurprisingly, some of the most targeted sectors are oil and gas and the institutions that uh, invest in those businesses we anticipate that these sectors will receive greater attention, especially in view of enhanced disclosure and reporting obligations. The CSRD and proposed CSDDD, as I previously mentioned, are likely to expose many companies to greater scrutiny. And in particular, when it comes to the CSRD, that will require in-scope companies to disclose sustainability risks on a so-called double materiality basis. And that means disclosing sustainability risks and opportunities facing the business and the impact of the business on society and the environment. Notably, the directive has been impacting UK companies owing to its extraterritorial reach and somewhat controversially. The latter, however, being the so-called CSDDD, is still at the proposal stage, but that would require both EU and non-EU in-scope companies alike to identify and, where necessary, prevent and mitigate the negative impact of their activities on human rights and the environment. So essentially conducting due diligence on their value chains worldwide. So a very significant proposal if it goes through. And importantly, the UK government last year made clear it doesn't plan at this stage to replicate those proposals in the UK. I'm going to move on now to discuss the annual report and I want to draw out three areas which are featuring regularly in discussions with clients. Firstly, reporting on diversity. Secondly, the continued focus on executive remuneration. And finally, the new requirement for a non-financial and sustainability information statement. Starting with diversity disclosures, most people listening will be aware of the changes that were made to the listing rules and the DTRs for financial years starting on or after the 1st of April 2022. This timing meant that companies with a 31st of March year end were the first to be required to report in 2023 
and that this coming reporting season will be the first where December year-end companies are required to do so, although many did disclose on a voluntary basis last year, so this won't feel completely new. To recap briefly on the new requirements, firstly, companies must state, as at a chosen reference date, which would usually be their year-end, whether they meet each of three targets, which are that at least 40% of the board are women, at least one senior board position, so that's chair, CEO, CFO or CID, is held by a woman, and at least one board member is from a minority ethnic background. Companies that don't meet all three targets need to state which they haven't met and the reasons why not. Secondly, companies need to include a table of numerical data regarding the ethnic background and the gender identity or sex of the individuals on the board, in senior board positions and in executive management. And in this context, they also need to explain their approach to collecting that data, including collection methods and data sources. Finally, under the DTRs, it's now expected that a company's disclosure on its diversity policy will be extended to describe how the policy applies to the key committees of the board, so the remuneration, audit and nomination committees, as well as how it applies to the board. And while the aspects of diversity covered by the DTRs are still non-exhaustive, the rule now explicitly refers to a wider range of characteristics. So, Kate, bearing in mind that most people working on annual reports are familiar with the new listing rules and the updated DTRs from their work in 2023, what particular practice points would you draw out for the coming season? Thanks. I think firstly, in respect of the targets for board diversity, the point to reiterate is that they operate on a comply or explain basis. So failure to meet a target is not a breach of the listing rules, provided reasons are given. And in the short term, I think it's going to be actually quite common to miss one or more of the targets, given that based on the last few months of FTSE 100 annual reports, it seems that while almost everyone has met the target to have at least one board member from an ethnic minority background, around half of the FTSE 100 were, at least at the time of their last annual report, still working towards one or both of the gender diversity targets. But focusing, as you said, Victoria, on specific practice points, I think the key one here is that where a company hasn't met all three listing rule targets, it should state very clearly which ones it hasn't met and then provide a meaningful explanation of the reason or context for this, ideally including some disclosure around succession planning activity as a route to improving diversity over time. Because while institutional shareholders are currently quite sympathetic in the way they assess companies that fall short of some targets, they'll probably ramp up the pressure and become more critical over the next couple of years. And particularly as we approach the FTSE Women Leaders Review 2025 target end date to meet the gender diversity targets. And as we move beyond the Parker Review 2024 target end date for FTSE 250 companies, in addition to the FTSE 100, who've mostly already done this, to meet the board level ethnic diversity target. Incidentally, by the way, while I mention the Parker Review, there is a significant new recommendation in there this year, which I'm sure will be covered in many annual reports, that companies should also set and disclose their own chosen target for the percentage of senior management who identifies being from an ethnic minority to be achieved by December 2027. But... Back to the listing rules and specifically on that requirement to include a table with diversity data for the board and executive management, the main practice point I draw out is that this year it's essential for companies to follow the table format that's in the listing rules. And while there is flexibility to include additional categories, a report will not be compliant if any line items are left out. 
I also think from our review of voluntary disclosures in 2023 that some companies may need to give some more detailed thought to their disclosure around the approach to collecting data, including to the appropriate level of detail and the methods and sources used. And finally, just a very brief comment on the DTR changes. The key thing from an annual report disclosure perspective is to ensure that the description of the board diversity policy clearly includes the main board committees. And the underlying practice point here is to make sure the board diversity policy itself has been appropriately updated. Thank you, Kate. So quite a lot to think about there, both for companies reporting against these rules for the first time and for those who reported last year, but who may want to refine their disclosures this year. If I now turn to remuneration reporting, Laura, I think I'm right in saying that there are no new requirements for remuneration reports, but it would be great to hear what best practice trends you're seeing, which companies may want to think about. Yes, that's right. There have been no changes to reporting requirements for remuneration reports for the FY23 reporting season. Looking at remuneration reports, there is a continued trend for remuneration policies and awards under share schemes to be partly linked where practicable to the achievement of specific stakeholder or ESG metrics. These include, for example, a reduction in carbon emissions, increasing gender and ethnic minority representation in senior roles, and promoting ethical supply and manufacturing practices. This can be structured as a direct link between a percentage of the award amount and the achievement of these requirements, or for restricted share plans, delivering in these areas can be an underpin of the plan, with executive awards subject to a reduction in vesting where progress against ESG initiatives is deemed to be unsatisfactory. However, despite the increased prevalence of ESG metrics, it remains challenging for companies to quantify and measure progress towards these objectives. And as such, there remains a significant level of board discretion in assessing progress in these areas. As mentioned earlier, another common feature of remuneration reports was to justify adjusting the metrics for LTIP awards granted in 2020 that, on the basis of a three-year vesting cycle, were due to vest this year in order to avoid windfall gains arising from depressed COVID-19 share prices. Going forwards, this will likely remain a relevant consideration for share awards that were granted in COVID-19, but on the basis of a longer vesting cycle. Thank you, Laura. And now before we move on from the annual report, I wanted to ask you, Matt, about the one new requirement for most companies this year, which is for the non-financial information statement, which we currently often see as a cross-reference table in the strategic report to be expanded and renamed as the Non-Financial and Sustainability Information Statement, or for short, the NFSI Statement. Could you summarise for us, please, what's changed and the practical impact on reports? As many of our listeners will be aware, certain large UK entities from financial years beginning on or after April 2022 are required to include an NFSI statement in their strategic report. Um, The statement requires companies to comprehensively understand their operations from a sustainability perspective and disclose environmental, social, human rights risks, opportunities and impact. Importantly, there's a real focus on climate-related financial reporting. I think it's important here to flag as well that the statement is different from the TCFD Complier explain disclosures. I did warn you about the number of acronyms in this space. Whilst it's broadly aligned with TCFD and the four pillars of that regime, the statement goes further as in scope companies must make substantive disclosures in order to comply. Nevertheless, as most of our listed companies are attuned to reporting in line with TCFD now um, and disclosing against each of the TCFD pillars. The statement should not be too onerous, in particular 
government guidance has made clear that where a UK registered listed company is subject to the FCA listing rule requirements and disclosures in a manner consistent with TCFD, then it's likely to have already met the NFSI statement requirements. So I think that's very helpful alignment overall. So that's good news for our clients who are already reporting in line with TCFD and much of the legwork is already done. But naturally, companies that are caught should familiarise themselves with the requirements and the accompanying guidance. Stepping back a little bit, the NFSI statement requirements come at an interesting time when the UK government is taking stock of the non-financial reporting requirements being imposed on companies. And in this regard, a consultation by the Department for Business and Trade and the FLC recently ended and feedback has been sought on areas where reporting is found to be difficult, duplicative or inevitably expensive to comply with. Uh, the UK government has not yet announced the next stage of the consultation in this regard, but it aims to regulate, so it says, in a measured and proportionate way. And of course, looking at this context globally, very much uh, we see a plethora of reporting and disclosure requirements. So the UK government is taking perhaps a more measured approach in this regard. But it's particularly kind of important stance where UK companies, and particularly those that operate across borders, are having to manage that complexity and at times contradictory reporting requirements from different jurisdictions. One quick additional thought as regards reporting, um, and that's just a, a note on nature-related disclosures, and particularly being mindful of the launch of the framework for the Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosures, or TNFD, which happened last week in New York. We could talk for a whole session on TNFD, but for now, I just wanted to simply note that it's a voluntary framework for how organisations can address environmental risks and opportunities as regards natural capital, and it's something to keep an eye on. And now for the final part of the podcast, in which I'll ask our speakers for some brief thoughts on developments in the pipeline that may impact future reporting seasons. In particular, the government's plans for corporate governance reform. I should mention that there have been suggestions that some of the reforms requiring primary legislation may be delayed or even put on hold indefinitely. However, the Department for Business and Trade has published draft secondary legislation relating to annual report disclosures, and the FLC has consulted on proposed updates to the UK Corporate Governance Code. And so, depending on the parliamentary process and on the outcome of the FLC's consultation, we are expecting there to be some quite significant changes to listed company annual reports, most likely for financial years beginning on or after the 1st of January 2025. So starting with you, Kate, what key points would you draw out? Thanks, Victoria. And I will keep it brief, but just to summarise, if the draft company's strategic report and director's report amendment regulations 2023 are brought into force in their current form, and this will only happen after a debate in Parliament, then a number of significant new statements will be required in the annual reports of all companies with 750 employees or more and an annual turnover of at least 750 million. 
So firstly, there will be a resilience statement summarising the company's strategic approach to managing risk and to building and maintaining resilience over the short, medium and long term, with the long term disclosure extending beyond the period typically covered at the moment by the annual viability statement. Secondly, there will be an audit and assurance policy or AAP statement to be refreshed every three years and with an annual update on implementation. Now, contrary to plans initially mooted, we understand that the AAP will be provided for shareholders information but will not be voted on. Thirdly, there will be a material fraud statement summarising the direct assessment of the risk of material fraud and the main measures in place to prevent and detect fraud. And finally, there will be a disclosure of the director's policy on distributions, that's including dividends and share buybacks, and a statement of the distributor profits available at both the beginning and the end of the year. Now, I think a common theme uniting all these statements is increased transparency and therefore, to some extent, accountability for risk management and internal control and for strategic decision making. And the reason I mention this point is that this theme is also a key feature of the proposed updates to the code. These aren't in final form, of course, but as it stands, we're expecting the directors will be required to make a specific declaration as to whether they can reasonably conclude that the risk management and internal control systems have been effective throughout the year. They'll also be required to explain the basis of the declaration and to describe any material weaknesses or failures and remedial action being taken. So to the extent a company thinks improvements could be made to its systems, now or the next year or so is a great time to work on those. I won't dwell on other aspects of the draft updated code, and I'm sure Laura and Matt will have a couple of points to make anyway, but other standout things for me are an increased emphasis on disclosure around directors' external commitments, very much, of course, in line with investors' focus on overboarding over a number of years now, and an expectation of higher quality disclosure on succession planning, which ties in very much with the purpose of the new listing rule and DTR diversity disclosure requirements that we discussed earlier on. Thanks, Kate. And if I could turn to you, Laura, the REM report isn't impacted by the draft new regulations that Kate's talked about. But what about the potential impact of changes to the UK Corporate Governance Code? So building on a trend we're already seeing in annual reports, the consultation outlines changes to the UK Corporate Governance Code that would require companies to include an explanation of how the strategic rationale for executive director's remuneration policies, structures and performance metrics supports the company's strategy and ESG objectives. Companies would also be required to link remuneration outcomes to the successful delivery of these metrics. As mentioned earlier, many companies are already providing explanations along these lines in their reporting and are doing so in response to increasing institutional and stakeholder pressure. This change would therefore effectively represent the formalisation of this trend and, in a sense, the code catching up to existing market practice. The proposed changes also include a requirement for the annual report to include a description of a company's malice and clawback provisions which are provisions that allow a company to reduce or recover remuneration from employees, including disclosure around the minimum circumstances in which malice and clawback provisions could be used, a description of the minimum period for malice and clawback and why this period is best suited to the company, and the use of these provisions in the last five years, including clear reasons if the provisions have been used in the last reporting period. The rationale for this change is to ensure that there is greater transparency around the malice and clawback arrangements that companies have in place, so that remuneration can be withheld or recovered from directors for misconduct, misstatements and other serious failings, with the aim of increasing the accountability of directors for adhering to their statutory duties. Thanks, Laura. And finally, Matt, as sustainability issues continue to gain greater profile, what difference might the new code make if implemented in its current form? I think a relevant point to draw out from the uh, proposed new code is the possibility 
that the role of the audit committee will be expanded to include sustainability reporting. And this includes monitoring the integrity of narrative reporting of sustainability matters and considering significant issues relating to those matters and how they can be addressed. I think more generally, one area where we see clients raising lots of questions relates to whether their sustainability-related information should be audited. Whilst this is not required by the new code, the CSRD, as I previously mentioned, requires that sustainability information be assured initially on a limited basis, but with reasonable assurance at a later date. And more broadly, however, bringing sustainability matters within the audit committee's remit demonstrates the importance of sustainability reporting whilst enhancing, hopefully, the quality, credibility and reliability of the report and associated data and ensuring that it has the right oversight. I would highlight that these sustainability requirements and the reporting standards applied are not yet aligned. This is one of the challenges, I think, in this area. Disclosures are particularly different for those clients with global operations. Hence, it's crucial to develop strong governance processes for managing and disclosing sustainability data, including from supply chains, and that those processes are sufficiently flexible to adapt to a diverse range of requirements. And on that note, we see more clients, especially listed clients, creating separate ESG committees, more than 40% on our last check that we made amongst clients have ESG committees set up. And obviously boards will have the main responsibility for setting the company's ESG direction. However, it's quite clear, as Glass Lewis have emphasised, that the board can be supported by ESG committee and its oversight role. And boards clearly need to ensure that other committees that touch on ESG work also fit within a coherent governance and sustainability plan. Thank you, Matt, and also Laura and Kate. That concludes our agenda for today. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast. We hope you found the content interesting. Do get in touch with any of us if you have questions or if we can help with any aspect of your annual report or AGM preparations.